Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Lexi Freeman. Her first novel, Inappropriation, was longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the Miles Franklin Award. Her new novel is The Book of Ein, which is published by our friends at Catapult. Lexi, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It is an honor to have you here, Lexi. And first, um, you are Australian, but you graduated from Columbia's MFA program. Uh, where are you living now, and how has it been there for the last few years since COVID-19 hit? Um, I don't know where I live, honestly, at the moment. Uh, I went back to Australia mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the pandemic, and I don't know. I, I, I have a complicated relationship with Australia, so... Um, I'm I'm doing some TV writing there, which has been great. But aside from that, um, I don't know. I think it's in my nature to uh, sort of travel or flee um, <laughs> things that feel. So um, I've been. I'm now in New York, uh, but I'm only here for a few weeks, and then. Um, back to Australia for a job and and then I'm not sure but um I've been spending more and more time in Europe which um is I'm liking I spent half the summer in Budapest trying to learn Hungarian which Mm. turned out to be really hard Mm. um so yeah uh that's 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 my answer to that yeah (laughs) <laughs> Good answer. Thank you so much, Lexi. Uh, I now want to jump into this excellent novel. This book is so good. Um, thank Lexi, you. thank you for writing it. Uh, could you just take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners, please? Sure. Um, it's a book about a writer who is sort of cancelled um, for writing a classist satire on the opioid epidemic. And uh, she kind of rebels against the New York literary uh, world and flees to Los Angeles where she's trying to pursue um, the subject of her latest obsession and a sort of like um, she's kind of radicalized in a way towards the philosophy of Ayn Rand. And mm-hmm. so she's embracing those ideas and trying to sort of get a TV show up about Ayn Rand, her muse, and um, things obviously don't go according to plan, and she ends up uh, on an ego-death cult in Greece. <laughs> That's basically the premise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Lexi. So um, why Ayn Rand? It seems like writing a book about Ayn Rand is the easiest way to get scoffed at. Uh, by the literary community that's exactly what I thought and that's why I did it Mm -hmm. um I guess my first book was a satire of identity politics which was Mm -hmm. definitely a risky proposition uh, especially at that time and um I guess I was looking for something that would also be a little bit controversial or provocative um not just to not just to be a provocateur but to sort of um, find the stuff in Ayn Rand uh, that is interesting or worth 
exploring or elaborating on. Um, and I wasn't familiar with her really until I started researching because being an Australian, we we don't really um, study her books or she's not such a um, kind of significant figure for us. Mm. So I just started researching, reading her nonfiction and fiction and then some biographies and I found her um, quite amusing and strange. And um, yeah, so it's not, it's not a sort of uh, straight satire in the sense that I'm not just mercilessly mocking Ayn Rand or libertarianism. Mm. I think it's looking for um, both what is funny and absurd and, um, and, and the places where there is a kernel of truth or something sort of interesting um, and worth thinking a little bit about. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, have we reached a tipping point uh, as a culture when people are not only getting quote unquote canceled, but canceled for writing satire or doing comedy. <laughs> yes, I'd say we've reached we've reached a few tipping points. I mean, yeah, I I don't know who's been canceled for writing satire. I've definitely been told I shouldn't. I was kind of advised not to write this book when I started working on it several years ago, um, and I think I've gotten lucky because I think there's been a bit of a shift in the last year or so. Um, I think people are more open to uh, satire of cancel culture. Um, But I'd say, yeah, in terms of like the comedy space, I think that's become really a very fraught um, arena for, you know, transgressive humour, which in my opinion is the best kind and um, I feel should be in some ways a pretty safe space um, for comedians to kind of, play inside of and for audiences to sort of also like drop their um you know censoriousness and sensitivity it's like so liberating and as someone who's been the butt of jokes in a comedy show you know whether it be as a woman or as a Jew or whatever you know like it's um it is it is a choice we can make and I think people are sort of remembering that I think there was a moment where people became very um you know sensitive and and um and easily offended and I think I think that's really boring and I think people are sort of bored by it and also so many people have sort of um either been cancelled known someone who's been cancelled disagreed with the cancellation uh you know at this point it's just become a, a kind of absurd it, you know it it's reached it's sort of I think Zenith and um, yeah. So I think there's a lot more receptivity to, to kind of making fun of it, but I also, you know, the book, the book does sort of look at, you know, why it exists and, and where it comes from and what, you know, there's, there's characters in the book who make arguments for, uh, you know, affirmative arguments for it. So it's, you know, it's a it's a discussion of <laughs> as well as a satire. Yeah, thank you so much, Lexi. Um, the New York Times calls our protagonist in this novel a narcissist. Uh, I have heard the term narcissist thrown around more in the past, say, five years uh, than in all of my previous years combined. Uh, narcissist, gaslighting, other terms uh, that are similar. Um, why do you think this is? Well, I guess there's, you know, the sort of um, the way in which social media has 
kind of made us more narcissistic. I think that's definitely um, true the way that it, the way that it, you know, works, the system of like attention seeking and reward and all of that. Um, But I guess I read a book while I was writing this called um, The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember when he wrote this book. I feel like it was in the 80s or the late 70s. But, you know, he was talking then about this phenomenon and how I think, you know, it's sort of after people kind of lost faith in um, all the big economic systems, um, I guess, you know, towards the towards the end of the 70s and, and after, you know, the, the kind of countercultural movement failed and there was this shift towards, you know, the individual and just all we can really do is sort of work on ourselves, try to fix ourselves, like that's the way to improve the world. Mm. So I think there's been this like trend for a while and um, and the technology has just really like fastened onto it and found the best way to monetize those those needs that we all have to be seen and to be you know acknowledged um so yeah I noticed it too which is sort of why I made uh a bit of a joke at the center of the novel around narcissism and how everyone you know kind of feels that they um, probably dated or like all their exes are narcissists and several of their friends or whoever you like don't like on the day is a narcissist and then everyone's terrified that they're a narcissist <laughs> so yeah that I was um I thought that was funny absolutely thank you for that answer Lexi um is Ayn Rand really a gateway drug for husbands to quit their jobs and become online day traders <laughs> I don't know I know I said that in the book but um I guess that was sort of my assumption maybe at the beginning. Uh, I went on a dating site called the Atlasphere, which is for um, Randians. And mm-hmm. I think some of the people I saw on there maybe gave me that impression. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I think of her as someone who like a lot of adolescents encounter and get really excited about. And then as they, you know, um go on to university they realize that she's like persona non grata and it's not cool to be an individualist or um and I guess I think different personalities still value you know those ideas and um yeah and so I think um maybe at a maybe there's a moment in everyone's life where they feel that they're fed up with the path they've chosen and they and you know Ayn Rand is like she's very motivating you know she's um like Jordan Peterson she'll like get you up out of bed cleaning your room and you know I guess like trading stocks if (laughs) if that's your thing right absolutely thank you so much Lexi listeners we're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor and then I will be right back with Lexi Freeman The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood 
bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Lexi Freeman, author of The Book of Ein, which is published by our friends at Catapult. Uh, Lexi, you alluded to some of this a little bit before uh, the break here, but outside of the world of your novel for a moment, what is your Lexi Freeman's impression of Ayn Rand? I personally read Atlas Shrugged in the Fountainhead when I was a teenager, uh, like many people did. I liked them well enough at the time, but then later in life, uh, now actually preparing for this interview, I picked up the Fountainhead to flip through it. Um, and the writing is terrible. Just the first two pages, I felt like I was reading a hacky uh, underground creative <laughs> writing workshop story. Um, but what are your personal per- perceptions of Ayn Rand in her writing? Yes, I agree with you. Um, I struggle with her fiction. I mean, yeah, God, it's like, I don't think it was edited at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's didactic and uh, just relentless. Those scenes just go on forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I really don't enjoy her fiction. I found that like, quite punishing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I had a response to her nonfiction that was more like, in the sense that like some of the sort of um, audacious thinkers that I enjoy reading who are sort of more like um, popular kind of cultural commentators like Zizek or, I don't know, Baudrillard or there's there's certain people who like are really fun to read because they say outlandish things and it's not, you know, they take um, big leaps in their thinking and, and it's just sort of almost for me it's like a jumping off point for my own thinking where, you know, someone someone like that says something provocative and then I kind of want to think about the ways in which that's true and not true and so I feel like with her nonfiction, it was that kind of experience where you know like reading the virtue of selfishness a lot of the ideas are sort of basic but then there's then there's some things in there where I'm like okay if you extend that argument out like it does you can apply it to a lot of philosophies that I personally find really um uh like important in terms of my own like the way that I choose to live my life and a lot of that is like eastern philosophy and so I was kind of interested in the way that I could kind of map some of Ayn's thinking onto that stuff which I found I find you know wise and profound and actually useful as a life philosophy um so yeah that's sort of where I got like most interested in her um but yeah she was new to me uh for the most part yeah thank you so much um now back into the world of your book the book of Ein. uh how Lexi is writing historical fiction like masturbating to Michelangelo's David <laughs> um I like these quotes you're pulling they're um <laughs> very evocative um uh I guess that was kind of the experience I had at first because at first I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this book. Mm -hmm. And the obvious choice was like, write some kind of weird biography or some like reimagining, like historical reimagining or, you know, like I was sort of trying to figure out what the idea would be. And I tried to write, um, I tried to write, you know, stuff set in, 
the 50s in New York and I guess yeah it just like had a sort of um I'm trying to think of how to relate that to the quote it did have a sort of like very surfacey sort of um uh there was like no entry point mm-hmm. <laughs> um there was it, it just felt like you know detached and kind of uh, I couldn't I couldn't get close enough to the material I think because you know I have an idea of that era mm-hmm. and um I think I'm just probably more at ease when I can play with dialogue and language and like not be sort of um uh hampered by uh not hampered um like hamstrung by you know um the kind of dialogue or the kind of speech that I imagine they were they were using and the ideas and and also it just requires an enormous amount of research to write a period you know historical fiction so um yeah it was like I couldn't find the fun stuff I think that's that's it it's like uh I feel like when I write I I'm looking for the the sort of like the energy that the 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 idea that that is um driving it which is which is often something that's sort of funny and a bit transgressive and and I kind of couldn't find that in in an era that I'm wasn't familiar with you know so it it didn't it just there was no um no juice mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much Lexi, um, your protagonist gets a call to write a television series based on Ayn Rand, and she warns the person who is pitching this to her that it won't be like Succession. Uh, and my question is, why does this need to be mentioned? Is there an understanding at this moment of time that all TV series need to branch off of Succession in some way, <laughs> shape, or form? Um. Kind of. I mean, either Succession or The White Lotus or, um, you know, just like one or two others. Uh, I think in TV land, there's a lot of like, um, yeah, yeah, we want original ideas. But like, what is this show exactly like? Like, give Mm -hmm. us comps, (laughs) which I find really annoying. Um, And so, yeah, it's a bit of a joke, I guess, an industry kind of joke about how everything has to in some way resemble something that came before it that like did really well and was a commercial success. Although, yeah, so succession, I suppose also the the content of succession is sort of close in the sense that it's, you know, about um, a family of capitalists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's part of what I was going for but it could have been the white lotus it could have been a couple of other shows that every every producer and network executive um hopes that uh the show they're being pitched will kind of be like yeah for sure we do that uh in the book world too i mean the amount of times hand selling a book that i've heard someone say oh it's like succession but um (laughs) (laughs) you know and yes um, yeah, yes. if anyone from HBO is listening, uh, you can send your checks to Lexi and I um, for the plugs here. Um, <laughs> but you write for television, Lexi. What, uh, in your opinion, is the current state of television as an art form? Are there still series out there that are viewing by appointment that have to be watched as soon as they are released? Or was Succession kind of the last of these shows, do you think? 
I mean, I don't know. I, uh, among my friends, I'm like, they joke that I hate entertainment and <laughs> I don't watch most shows. Um, and I'm, yes, pretty critical of um, most TV. And now I'm regretting not having read this piece I just saw yesterday in the New Yorker about the state of television because oh. I feel like I'd have better an- a better answer. <laughs> but um, I kind of feel like from what I've been hearing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there is like, I think people are, there's, because they're feeling more like risk averse right now after all mm-hmm. the, stuff that's gone on this year I think people are people are um worried that the shows that will be bought are mostly going to be pretty commercial genre you know like big um kind of uh like I don't know um shows that yeah are like other shows that have done well so like not a lot of original um risky content which is a real bummer um and yeah and it just you know I think that bubble burst where everyone was like oh it's the golden age of television and Mm -hmm. it's like there's really only a handful of shows that have been like amazing Mm -hmm. and uh and then there's a whole lot of other shows that have their moments they have their episodes um they might have like you know an interesting premise or an amazing character or you know but like they're not consistently amazing shows and and, you know, the thing that I find annoying is that people kind of, yeah, there's like some myth now in the culture that like television is highbrow and and like it's okay to just sit there and binge television for hours and hours when like most shows are still pretty trashy and like they're designed to sort of make you a, a passive consumer of the ideas um, that are pretty like, uh, you know, mainstream and safe and um, not challenging because why would you click on the next episode if the thing was challenging? Um, so it's just like the model itself is like not designed to be high art because high art is difficult and uncomfortable and you don't want to binge it. So, um, so yeah, I think people are conf- there's there's this like myth now that unfortunately people think it's like, somehow you know um okay to watch all that television and then talk about the shows you're watching at dinner and or you know socially and obviously people are reading less books which is you know not great um but I feel like I feel like this is not you know I feel like a lot of people do have a similar opinion to me at this point and so um I I just hope they all stop watching television (laughs) And I guess that means I'll be out of a job. But um, I think I think we'll all be happier. I think we should all be we should be living our lives as opposed to living them vicariously through, you know, these TV protagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the end yeah. of my rant. No, thank you for that rant. And um, <laughs> I agree. And I have not read that article yesterday, but think uh, either. But thanks for bringing it to my attention. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. After this interview, presumably it was um, commenting on the end of the actor strike and the writer strike and all of these other things. But yeah, I think yeah, so. yeah, we'll see. Um, well, thank you, uh, Anna. Your protagonist, who is named on page fifty-one and maybe not before, um, she says one of her most redeeming qualities is that she does not wear yoga pants. Uh, can you explain? 
God. <laughs> um, I guess uh, that, what that apply? I, mean, I think that's sort of um, in a way hinting towards somewhere the book kind of goes in terms of like these ideas ideas of selfishness and mm-hmm. um and how that pertains to this sort of self-care kind of movement or you know trend or whatever mm-hmm. and um this idea that yeah if you drink a smoothie or um you know uh do a sound bath you will essentially be sending the vibes required to like you know, fix climate change, like bring about world peace, like just just focus on yourself and don't worry about anything else. And um, I think obviously Anna doesn't care about fixing the world, mm-hmm. but um, I think she, she sees the hypocrisy in that, which is just another reason to sort of push that whole culture aside. Um, and And I think, yeah, you know, there's probably also a bit of like self-consciousness or, you know, this idea that like the women who walk around in yoga pants are so hot, they can just walk around in yoga pants. Or I think Anna does not see herself as um, having that kind of, she, I don't think she sees herself as a, as a physically very attractive woman. Mm. So, so there's just also that kind of other level of resentment of, the, of those women. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lexi. Um, finally, And listeners, we have barely grazed the surface of this book, but this book is fantastic. It is one of the best books of the year, period. If you're listening to this podcast, you will love this book, and that is a book and podcast guarantee. Uh, But finally, Lexi, I'm hoping that you can talk about Ayn Rand's ideas about the contemporary left, uh, contemporary in her case being in the 1970s in this instance, uh, and that these contemporary leftists, to her, lived in a world of pure subjectivity with no distinction between past and present, where every historical injustice was happening right now. Uh, Can you talk about this idea of Ein's and how it translates to uh, our current culture in 2023? I mean, yes. <laughs> I think when I I was reading, um, I think it was a book about, it was like essays of hers sort of later in her life mm-hmm. where I think sort of in the 60s and 70s she really became very disgusted <laughs> by um, the counterculture and, um, you know, I guess the, the, the movements for social social justice that were a part of that. And she saw a lot of um, the rhetoric, you know, around, uh, I guess, like, um, I mean, it would have been also, you know, uh, colonialism and and the the movements for decolonization that were happening in Europe. I think, you know, for Ayn, the idea that, um, that you would fall back on, historical grievances was just um shameful to her uh because you know she sort of believed that life should be this kind of present tense struggle you're on your own the individual is everything you fight for what you want and you don't try to get things as a result of uh you know you don't try to get anything um because like she wasn't she didn't ideas like privilege did not enter into her mind as um, viable. It's like, 
in a sense, we all start from scratch and you don't, you know, historical wrongs or um, the ways in which, you know, economically you might have been oppressed, that didn't, that didn't um, mean very much to her. And she, and she kind of saw it as a, as a kind of uh, issue of self-esteem in a way where it's like, if you see yourself as a victim, if you see yourself as oppressed, then that's the way you will behave and that's the and that's the kind of like destiny that will that that will come your way and um and she and she you know thought that everyone should see themselves as a potential victor and as you know and obviously we know that's not um how things work and these ideas you know of um these ideas were new uh to her and and she was, you know, a reactionary and contrarian. And, but, um, so I guess I, I thought it was interesting that obviously these ideas have been given a uh, new life now or a fresh kind of perspective, slightly, a slightly different one to what was going on in the 60s and 70s. And, um, and yeah, you know, it, I don't have, um, you know, the, the character's not me. So it's not, these are not my opinions, but you know this character is kind of weighing up Ein's argument and and looking at a bunch of people that she's hanging out with in LA mm-hmm. who are sort of you know probably also reasonably privileged themselves, but they're like a mouthpiece for this kind of culture or this you know this these ideas of victimhood and oppression and um, yeah and you know kind of she's playing with this idea of like you know being in the present tense struggle and not looking back, not looking at the past, not seeking um, special treatment or, you know, and that being a a matter of like self-esteem, self-preservation and the freedom to, to act on your life situation or the circumstances um, that you find your material circumstances rather than feeling that, um, that you are doomed in some way. So, yeah, I think she's she's playing with those ideas and uh, updating them. Um, and yeah, I think it's an I think it's interesting. And this is also <laughs> very very um, tricky territory to get into as someone who's who's uh, just speaking about them in an interview. I think the thing that I like about writing books is that I can put all these ideas into the book and there's all this like space for the ideas to sort of live through characters and through conversations and through, you know, a character arc. Whereas when I articulate them in this, in this way, you know, um, I feel myself being triggered by this idea or that idea or, you know, and, um, and in a sense, that's why I think the satirical novel is a really great place for these ideas and um and i i admire journalists uh but i would not want that job (laughs) yeah absolutely well thank you so much lexi for that answer and thank you so much for writing this wonderful book listeners i've been speaking with lexi freeman author of the book of ein which is published by our friends at catapult lexi thank you so much for joining me Thank you so much. This was fun. 
Once again, I would like to thank Lexi Freeman for joining me. Copies of the Book of Ein can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.